0: Good morning once again to you. Thank you for being here this morning. At this time, as we look through the Word of God, we're, we're focusing on um, a letter, a long letter, written by Paul the Apostle back uh, in the first century, writing to a group of Christians in a church that he probably planted um, in one of the biggest cities of the world. At that time, a city of about 250,000 people. I guess half the population of, of Wyoming. It's a very, very important letter. It's not really written to address any specific problems, as most of his letters do. Rather, it's a letter that tries to tell this church that he loves dearly how to be a church. The letter is divided into two very clear halves. The first half of the book, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Uh, contains no commands. Well, maybe one command, remember. It says once, remember. I guess that's a command. But it doesn't have any commands. All it does is it shows this is who God is and what he's done and what he thinks of us, and it's pretty good. I mean, it's incredibly good. Now, in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he's going to say, in light of that, this is how you should live your life, or he uses the word walk. Remember last week we talked about the different postures. We're now at the walk stage. Remember, we bowed and then we were raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Now, how do we live? So this is the first week in which we talk about how we live. And the very first thing he addresses is a subject that we are really, really bad at, namely unity. Unity. If anyone was to look at the Christian church around the world, probably the first thing that would come to their mind when they try to uh, understand us is that we are a uh, divided church. We um, we split. We split a lot. The Christian church is split into thousands and thousands of different little denominations. We're very, very good at splitting. In fact, this diagram is just a very, very simple tree of what some of these denominations are. We began as one church. Each town had just one church, like the church of Ephesus, the church of Laodicea, the church of Rome, maybe a variety of house churches, but they really were only one church. Well, as time went on, the church started to grow and to split. It made its first enormous split in 1054, as you can see there. It's called the Great Schism. That's when Eastern Orthodoxy, that's Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and Roman Catholicism split. And, in fact, the first time the leaders of those church met was in the last few years. They hadn't even talked to each other for 1,000 years. That just changed recently with Pope Francis and the patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So they split then, and then 500 years ago, this year, 1517, the third big branch of the Christian church, the Protestants, the protesters, that's us, began. Now, from these three... Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant, we now have more than 20,000 branches. By branches, I don't mean churches. I mean branches. Methodist being one branch. uh, Southern Baptist being one branch. So we have 20,000 or more of these branches. So you can see, we are experts at splitting. And Sheridan's no exception. I understand there's something like 60 churches in town. 60 different branches to the one church that calls itself by the name of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a problem, but it's actually worse. It's worse because when Jesus was about to leave this world, the day before he died, he prayed. And we have in the Bible his prayer. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. It's recorded in John chapter 17. And in this prayer, he first of all prays about himself. He says, Father, the time's come. I want you now to glorify the Son as I have glorified you. And then he prays for his disciples who are in the room with him. Oh, he prays for them because he knows they're in for a real ride, a tough time. And then he prays for those who would believe in the future. That's us. And this is his request. I pray that they would be one, as we are one. And if, we are, if they are one, the world will know that you have sent me, if they are one. Well, we've done a really lousy job. We're now at twenty to 40,000 denominations and counting. So we have not done a very good job of unity, for probably a variety of reasons. Now, the Apostle Paul wants the people of Ephesus who are in the church that he planted to be united. The problem is they have all kinds of reasons to divide. And so he's now going to focus today on what are the resources that will help you to stay united and what are the truths about which we must be united. So unity is the subject. And if you have a a Bible, please turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses one to six. Now, this is written, Klein Snodgrass is a, a commentator, someone who writes commentaries about the books of the New Testament. He wrote this Throughout the New Testament, ethical imperatives, that means a command, are based on theological indicatives, that means statements. So, God says, You are in Christ. That's a statement. Therefore, walk as if you are in Christ. That's a command, an imperative. Obedience is always a response to God's grace. God never says, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and do it. It doesn't say, just follow God or just do it. It doesn't say that ever. It says, this is who you are. This is what God has done for you. This is what he's put in you. As a result of what he's done, YOU RESPOND. GOD ACTS FIRST, THEN WE RESPOND. THAT'S CHRISTIANITY. AND SO NOW HE'S GOING TO BASE EVERYTHING THAT HE WRITES ON WHAT HE HAS TALKED ABOUT IN THE FIRST THREE CHAPTERS, AND NOW HE'S GOING TO TELL US HOW TO LIVE. AND THIS IS HOW HE BEGINS. AS A PRISONER FOR THE LORD. YOU'VE PROBABLY SEEN THOSE WORDS BEFORE, BECAUSE HE IS A PRISONER. HE WRITES THIS FROM A PRISON, PROBABLY IN ROME, NEARING THE END OF HIS LIFE. AND IT'S LIKELY THAT HE IS EVEN CHained TO A ROMAN GUARD. I forgot to bring this out last week. Can you imagine? He's, um, he's about ready to pray, and he's chained to a guard. He says, hey, let's get down on our knees together, <laughs> and So, because i got to pray. Well, I guess the guard did it. I put up with him, but he's a prisoner. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore. He said, in light of all that I've written before, as one who has given my life to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, I beg you, I beseech you, I plead with you, please, please live. Actually, the word live there is walk. Please walk worthy of the calling that you've received. Can you imagine if you were the queen, the queen of England, and new people are coming into your family. She has great-grandchildren now, and these children are starting to grow up, and she would say to them, now, children, you know, your royalty You're not like everybody else. You're royalty. And by the way, the Bible says we are royalty. You're a royal priesthood. The Bible says we're all priests. You're royalty. And you're really, really rich. Oh, the Bible says we are very rich. We have all the inheritance of Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. Makes Bill Gates look like a pauper. We are multi-trillion gazillionaires. That's who we are. In Christ, back to the Queen of England. Children, you're royalty. You've been given uncommon privileges. Now with these privileges come responsibilities. People do not have as much money as you do. You're born a millionaire. You're born with a special calling. Now live in light of who you are. That's what Paul is saying. Live in light of who you are we are in Christ. Now, in order to help us live united, in order to help First Baptist Church to be a church of people who walk through life together, united, we need seven graces and there are seven truths. You can't miss them. They're very easy. So that's what we're going to look at today. (coughs) Seven graces and seven truths. First of all, the seven graces. Be completely humble. It's not by accident that that's where it starts. I think it can be said that almost every split that's ever occurred has some facet of ego involved in it. Probably the main culprit of unity, the main enemy of unity, is human ego. You might think that these 20,000 divisions among Christians have come because we have taken 20,000 different views of the Bible. That is not true. It's because a lot of people with big egos would not submit to each other. That's why. The main reason why the church splits is because of ego. It's because people are not indeed humble. Now, what does humble mean? Humble does not mean, let me say it again, it does not mean putting yourself down. Oh, I'm a worm. I'm so bad at everything. I can't do anything right. Mm. That is not humility. That's that's horrible for a Christian. That's horrible. Somebody died for us. Somebody has chosen us. We're, 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 we're royalty. We're rich. No, no, we're not nothing. We're very, very we're the envy of the angels. We're, God, we're the apple of God's eye. What does humility mean? It doesn't mean putting yourself down. Humility simply means having a right estimate of yourself. You know who you are. It doesn't mean putting yourself down. You probably have heard, I know you've, all of you have heard of the term IQ, intelligent quotient. That's kind of how smart you are. But almost everyone, not almost, everyone who has ever examined anyone in a group or a corporation has realized that IQ is not the most important thing. EQ is. EQ means emotional quotient or emotional intelligence. That's basically how well do you get along with other people. There are lots of really, really smart people who make very bad employees (coughs) because... They don't get along well with other people, and the number one most important characteristic of emotional quotient is you have a right estimate of yourself. Now, if I was Michael Jordan, and someone said, "Michael Jordan, you are a great basketball player," and you go, "Oh no, I'm not really," you think, "Oh come on, you idiot! Yes, you are. You're the greatest ever." But then, if on the other hand I said, "Michael Jordan, you're a great basketball player," so you got the right one, baby. I said, wait a minute, Michael. You did not choose to be six feet six. You could have been five feet six. If he had been five foot six, we would never know the name Michael Jordan. He would never have played basketball. He happened to be six foot six, which gives him an enormous advantage in playing basketball. Where did he get that from? He didn't develop six feet six. You don't make yourself six feet six. That's genetics, it's given to him, it's a gift. So if you said, well, yeah, I'm the best. I'm the greatest because I did it all on my own. You say, no, you did not. You do not have a right estimate of yourself. You didn't make yourself six feet six. That was a gift to you. You used that gift for, to play basketball very, very well. But that is not something innate in you. Humility simply means you know who you are. And if you're a Christian, you should know who you are. First thing you know about yourself is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And you know that you became a Christian because of what Christ did for you, not what you did for him. <coughs> you became a Christian because you put your faith in what Jesus did for you. And you know that, the, that a corpse, no, one corpse cannot sit in a, in a casket and say to another corpse in, the, in another casket, say, hey, I'm better than you are. Corpses are corpses. They're dead. The only reason we have life is because God has given us life. So we cannot, any of us, claim to be better than any other person. That's we're all in the same boat. If only we would believe that. What would that do to to church unity? If we really believe that we are no better than anyone else. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Someone has described Christianity as one beggar telling another beggar where they can find bread. That's who we are. We're all the same. We're all susceptible to sin. We've all been brought up from the grave because He arose. That's who we are. And gentle. Gentle simply means you treat people with a soft touch. And who is the best at doing that? People who are humble. You know who you are. There's a a verse in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 1. and It says this. If any of you is caught in a trespass, in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. So in other words, if there's somebody in the church right now who is doing something that is obviously sinful, and you believe it's important for you to talk to them about what they're doing because it's wrong, who should do that job? I know who should do it. I could pick you out pretty easily. All I'd have to do is watch you in a group for a while, and I could pick out the person who should confront the sinning brother or sister. Here's how you find them. Number one, is their aim restoration? Not a pound of flesh. Oh, let's get them. No, no, you'll keep that one out of the room. You want someone whose goal is, here's a dear brother and sister in Christ. I want them to be part of the family of God again. I want them to go God's way. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. They can do it gently. They're not going to give them a piece of their mind. They're not going to rake them over the coals. They can do it gently. And thirdly, they know that they know that they know that they could do the same thing themselves. They know that. And so as a result, that's the person you want to be the rest the restorer. Someone who really wants to restore, who can restore gently and who knows how susceptible they are because they're humble. They know who they are. We're all susceptible to any sin, no matter really what it is, with a different set of circumstances. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Actually, the word "patient" means you have a long nose. <laughs> I guess I qualify. Um, that's what it means. Or we would say in English, you have a long fuse. It takes a lot to get you uh, angry. You're up, you're willing to 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 give to be patient with other people's wrongdoings. Even you give them time and. You forbear. Forbearance means you put up with. You put up with with one another. That's one of the beauties of of the church. That's why a church is different than any other club in the world, because in the church, we accept all comers. And the church is full of people we don't like, but we can't get rid of them. Now, a club, you can get rid of them. You can say, these are our standards. These are our, our financial standards. These are our educational standards. If you don't like them, they don't pass the committee and you keep them out. Church can't do that. We take all comers. And so in the church, you will find, and probably in, no, no one hears that way, but uh, I am. You find people you don't like. But we don't have the choice of whether or not we like them. We love people we do not like. That's the beauty of the church is we have to learn to love people. That is, treat them, choose to to, to treat them in their best interest in Christ. Even if we don't like them. We, the third one is, we are fourth. We bear with other people. We forbear. We're tolerant, in the best sense of the word, in love. Love, of course, is the central virtue, which means we choose to set ourselves aside And act in the best interest of the people that we love, of the other person. And then it goes on. Make every effort. In other words, work at it. As you know, with any relationship that's worth anything, particularly a marriage relationship, if you're going to have a good marriage, you've got to work at it. And if you're going to have unity in a church, you've got to work at it. How hard do you work at it? Make every effort. To do what? To simply work with the Holy Spirit in the work that He is already doing. The Holy Spirit has a vested interest in making First Baptist Church and the other churches in Sheridan one. He's got a vested interest in that. Our job is not to create unity. It doesn't say create unity. It says make every effort to maintain, to keep the unity that the Holy Spirit has already created in the bond of peace. That's our task. We don't create unity. God does that. But we have to be diligent to maintain it. And so those are the seven graces. That those are the, the personality or the personal, spiritual characteristics that we need to develop if we're going to be a church of people who are unified. We need to be people who are humble. That is, people who have a right estimate of themselves. We need to be people who are gentle, who have a soft. Touch with other people. We need people who are long suffering. That is, we're able to take a lot of grief and we're people who are forbearing because we cut people a lot of slack. We love people because we choose to act in the best interests of other people. We're diligent, which means we work super hard at it. At what? We work with the Holy Spirit to keep the unity of the church. Those are the graces. So, how are you doing? You know you're in a vulnerable spot as a church. You know that. You lost a couple of pastors back in uh, December last year. You have not a permanent pastor. I'm a fill-in here right now. Thankfully, you have a wonderful body of elders in this church, some great assets you have, but you're in a vulnerable place. These are the assets or the graces that you need to develop, particularly during this time, and even more, when a new pastor comes. Because by the way, when a new pastor comes, he's not going to be Jesus. He's not. He's going to have strengths and weaknesses as I have and everyone else has. And if you focus on the weaknesses, you'll kill him. If you focus on the strengths that God gave and put in him, you can flourish. What do we do in the church so often? We gossip to one another. In fact, oftentimes we gossip by, uh, by cloaking it In the words of, let's pray together. That's even worse. I I found this from a a magazine some years ago. And and it's entitled, um, you'll like it. It's, uh, How to Split Your Church. So, you want to split First Baptist Church? Here it goes. I hope you know you're not supposed to do this. Okay. Here's how to split your church. Number one, focus only on your own desires. This is the music I want. These are the songs I like. These are the programs I agree with. Focus only on your own desires. Number two, listen to every criticism. Oh, that'll really split you fast. Number four, focus on weaknesses, not strengths. Weaknesses, by the way, I don't know if you've known lived long enough to you know. To find someone's weaknesses takes about a kindergartner's intelligence. You can spot weaknesses in anybody really easily. You watch any preacher, you watch our funny mannerisms, our grammar, what we say, what we look like, the fact that my shirt my tie isn't up here, whatever it is. If you want to see weaknesses, you you might as well be a kindergartner. Anyone can see weaknesses. It's more difficult to see what are the strengths. And focus on the strengths. So the third thing you can do is just focus on weaknesses. Number four, speak the truth or... Practice love, but never put the two together. Don't put the two together. Churches that emphasize love at the expense of truth will eventually collapse on themselves. And churches that pound hard on the truth but fail to see the value of love will eventually devour each other. Keep the two separate. You kill each other very nicely. Number four. Number five. Store grievances for future use. Keep those in your, in your pocket. Number, five, number six, forgive only those who ask you to and only if they deserve it. That's not forgiveness, by the way. That's something else. Number seven, hide your own sin behind harsh attitudes. Eight, use prayer to unite discontented people. And this will even give you a, an air of spiritual maturity. Just think, you could have a prayer meeting and skewer each other and you look spiritual. But you're really not. Number nine, do whatever it takes to win. And number ten, consider your, your ability to split the church as being on mission from God. Oh, that'll split it beautifully. Of course, you're not supposed to do any, any of that. So those are the seven graces. Now, Grace and truth cannot be separated, um, as I just pointed out. Jesus was full of grace and truth. I've mentioned to you before, I think, here, but you can... Be, I'll, I'll probably say it many times while I'm here. My favorite, my life verse is John chapter 1, verse 14. Here's what it, how it goes. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of of grace and truth. If you look at Jesus in every encounter with everyone he dealt with, recorded in the Bible, he always is able to mingle grace and truth. We're horrible at it. I could identify them, there are churches in this town, which I'm quite certain are big on truth, but horrible on grace. And there are others that are big on lovey-dovey, but they're horrible on truth. You cannot separate them. Once you do, you've destroyed every, every kind of unity. That is not unity. Unity must be based on the seven graces and these seven truths. You can't miss them. Here they're all. Each one begins with the word one. There is one body. That's the church. When God... When God started the church on Pentecost, 30 AD, or around that time, He didn't say, let's have uh, 20,000 bodies, denominations. He said, no, we have, there's one body, there's one church, because the church has a single head. That's our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all members of the body. One body and one spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit. They're not, and so when, when some people say, well, I heard from the Holy Spirit this. Or someone says, well, I heard from the Holy Spirit this, and they are contradictory. You know somebody got it wrong, or maybe both. But there are not two spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's one spirit and one hope to which you are called. What is that hope? The great hope of us as Christians is that one day our Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth and inaugurate a millennium and eventually take us to heaven to live with him for eternity. That is the great hope of the church. One hope and one Lord. There's only one Lord. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no other Lord, just one. We have one faith. By that it means the body of of truth from from God's word that constitutes what's true of Christianity. There's only one way by which we make ourselves right with God, that is by grace through faith. There's one baptism. Now that one is a killer. One baptism? No. We have a thousand baptisms. We have, who do you baptize? Um, Most churches baptize infants. Eastern Orthodox baptize two-year-olds. Some Protestants, like First Baptist Church, we baptize believers. Who do we baptize? When do we baptize them? Birth eight days, two years, five years, 12 years, 15 years before they die. How do we baptize them? Forward, backwards, pour, sprinkle, dunk, dunk forward, dunk backward, dunk upside down, dunk. I mean, we got a thousand different ways. And what's the meaning of this? It's what takes away original sin. It's what identifies ourselves with Christ. It's what keeps us lest we die so that we can go to heaven before we've actually accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. All kinds of meaning. If there's anything that's divided the body of Christ, it is baptism, but not what this means. The Bible is quite clear that there's only one baptism. That is the baptism. When one becomes a believer, a true believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit baptizes us in Him, in Christ. There's only one baptism. And there's only one God and Father. There's only one who is over all and through all and in all. It begins with one and it ends with with all. And so there are seven truths that unite us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Someone wrote this. Oops. The emphasis on unity does not mean unity at any cost. Unity is not the goal. Unity in Christ is. The unity that comes from a shared faith and a shared knowledge of Christ. Therefore, there are limits to unity. The church and its unity are always Christologically and theologically defined. That means our unity is always based on who Jesus is and the truths that come from who Jesus is. If you take that away, we don't have any unity. We are Protestants. 500 years ago this year, a man in a little tiny town in the eastern part of Germany posted some debate points on the church doors, and it turned into what we know as the Protestant Reformation. The Protestants from its earliest days were based on what are called the five solas. Sola meaning only. Scripture alone. Our basis of authority is the Bible. Jesus alone. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is our Savior. How do we connect with him? By grace alone through faith alone. That's the essence of Protestantism. And why all of this? For the glory of God alone. In this very nation, in a 100 years ago, there was a strong sense that Christianity would die in America. You think it's bad now. It's nothing like it was 100 years ago. Theological liberalism from Europe had swept into America and most churches, not some, most churches in America didn't believe in the basics of the Bible. How do I know this? Well, because the church from which I came here to First Baptist is Calvary Baptist Church in Longmont, Colorado. Here's how the church began in 1955. In 1954 or thereabouts, a man from Kansas, moved to Longmont. His name was Doc Dickey. I knew him before he passed away. I did his funeral. Doc Dickey came to Longmont. He was a dentist. And one of the things he did is he started to attend First Baptist Church of Longmont. He loved the Bible, and he was a Bible teacher in their Sunday school program. And around the December time frame of 1954, as I recall, He started, he taught a lesson, a Sunday school lesson on the virgin birth of Jesus from the Christmas story. The following week, he was dressed down from the pulpit of that church because we have people who have now come to Longmont so stupid that they believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. And he was kicked out of the church. That's First Baptist Church, 1954. That's what Christianity was like in this country. There was some wealthy businessmen that saw that Christianity was about to die in America in 1910. They put up the money for the very, very few Bible-believing professors at places like Princeton who would identify what are the fundamental truths of Christianity. Actually, they wrote 90 pamphlets, but they would be summarized into the five that are called the five fundamentals. That's where we get the word fundamentalist from. It began in 1910. These are the five fundamentals of the faith. The deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The virgin birth of Jesus. The blood atonement that when he died on the cross, his blood was what paid for our sin. The fact that he physically and bodily rose from the dead. And our source of authority is the Holy Scripture. All five of these were in jeopardy in America a hundred years ago. Most churches, if we were alive a hundred years ago, would not believe any of these, or many of them they would not believe. Thankfully, Christianity in America, as far as theology is is concerned, has gone more and more conservatively. As far as morality is concerned, the other direction. Which means... There's something horribly wrong about us. When we, the truths that we believe are more and more biblical, but our lifestyle is less and less biblical, we have not, we're not walking the way we're supposed to be walking. These are truths that the Church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years of its history has held to tenaciously. You cannot separate grace and truth. And so, Here's the path we're on. We can divorce ourselves from the graces, descend into disunity and gossip and all kinds of other things. Or we can embody the graces that God has given us through His Holy Spirit, along with the truths that are foundational to Christianity, and stand together. And I beg you, please, to do that for Christ's sake and for the sake of this church. And speaking of standing, would you stand with me now? Because we're going to do something together that now for 2,000 years almost has been done by people all over our world. Approximately 140 A.D., this creed began to be circulated in our world. If right to this day we went to the Roman Catholic Church here in town, or Roman Catholic Churches every single place on earth, probably this day they are going to recite this creed. If right now we went to an Eastern Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, though the language might be different, they're going to affirm this creed. And all over this town and this world, this very minute, there are Christians in the millions reciting this creed. This is one of the few things we all hold in common. And it's as you can see, as we say, state it, it's completely different than the beliefs that were prevalent in America 100 years ago. And so, with now over 2 billion people, 2.1 billion people on the face of the earth, Hopefully, every one of us believes it. Let's recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He did more than that. See if we can find that last slide. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the holy Catholic Church, The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. By the way, Catholic there is a word that means universal. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic, it didn't exist at the time. The Holy Universal Church. Let's pray. Holy Spirit. May you fill this body with the graces you so liberally give, that they may be united in a time when unity is really important. And may you, Heavenly Father and precious Lord Jesus, fill this body with the courage and strength to base everything it does on your truth And may they beautifully and perfectly wed grace and truth in ways that embody the person and the work of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. May you go now and live full of grace and truth. God bless you.